Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to the MyFit Podcast. This week's episode has a very special guest. It's me. <laughs> I was recently on a podcast and got asked the question, DJ, what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned after recording 180 podcast episodes? Thankfully, I was able to pull out a lesson or two that was the top of mind for me, but it also got me thinking about putting together my first ever solo podcast episode, going over some of those big lessons and quotes that I've heard the past couple of years. Since starting the podcast, I've also received several messages or comments from my listeners and people in my gym saying they would like to hear more from me. So today, I'm doing just that. I'm stepping outside of my typical comfort zone and delivering a solo podcast to talk about 18 of my lessons that I've learned across 180 podcast episodes. Sometimes when I sit back and think about the conversation I've had with people or the audience I've built in the last three and a half years, it absolutely blows my mind. Uh, I just want to thank you guys all for the support and being a part of this journey. Uh, for some of you that don't know, it's a very small operation that does the MyFit podcast. It's me doing the shows, uh, Tony, who puts the show together. I would not be where I am without him. So thank you, Tony, for all that you do. And Isaiah, who does some of my reels and some of the stuff that you see on Instagram. So between the three of us, we've been able to crank out a pretty successful show almost four years now. And we have a lot of great things coming. Next week's episode is going to be a special one. Uh, I don't want to give too much away, but it'll be the first time that we have four mics on the same show, and there's going to be a lot of great information in there, so stay tuned to that. In today's solo show, I cover some of the lessons I've learned through guests on my show, books I've read, and just some general observations in life. It's hard to get down into one hour of content. Uh, I think I could have went a long time talking about the things I've learned in the past couple of years, and uh, it was very difficult to do. So the couple of the topics that we got into, that I got into, I should say, are first, getting out of your own way. Second, how to improve your mindset and the way you view life. Then I talked about understanding flow states, how to get, in, get them in more rapidly. Talked about asking the right questions, gaining confidence in all areas of your life, the importance of patience, top tips to become a better negotiator, what makes a good life, and much, much more. If you guys follow me on Instagram, you know that I post a weekly reminders bit every Monday. And some of these quotes and lessons learned come directly from that. So if you're looking to get more weekly wisdom into your uh, social media feed, go ahead and head over to Instagram and follow me at DJ Hillier. That's at D-E-E-J-A-Y-H-I-L-L-I-E-R. I hope you guys enjoy this solo podcast, unedited version, talking about some of the biggest lessons I've learned in the last couple of years. Let's go. MyFit Podcast is brought to you by Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. 
Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. With none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, and no BS. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. And it makes sense. You lose both water and sodium when you sweat. So both need to be replaced to prevent things like muscle cramps, headaches, and energy dips. There are several flavors to choose from. My favorite is the citrus salt, which is how I start every single day. And as listeners of the MyFit podcast, you can now receive a free element sample pack with any order by using the link www.drinkelement.com forward slash MyFit. Again, that's www.drinklmnt.com forward slash M-I-F-I-T. Go get yours now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I want to first start this segment by just saying thank you, saying thank you once again to all of you guys who have tuned in over the last 180 episodes. I definitely wouldn't be here without your guys's support, your comments, your feedback, and your willingness to buy t-shirts and share the episodes uh, with your friends. I just really appreciate it. It's super fun, enjoying for me to kind of sit back and just see where this thing has gone. Uh, it's a small operation, as I said earlier, and some of the stuff I'm just kind of learning as I go. And I really appreciate your guys's um, willingness and eagerness to stick with me, uh, be a part of this journey. And I'm just really excited for the future and excited to do things like this a little bit more often. Something that I've gotten um, several uh, comments and feedback from you guys is that you want to hear more from me. And I have some things planned in the future of doing some solo segments just like this. So you may see more of me in the future, maybe even doing another episode that is just me. So you'll hear two episodes a week from the MyFit Podcast. We will see. Stay tuned for more of that. But for today, I want to go through some of the most recent quotes or lessons that I've learned or just observations I've made in the last year or two, whether it's through coaching clients at the gym, whether it's through reading some books, preparing for podcasts, or the conversations that I'm having on the MyFit podcast itself. Some of it's top of mind and recent. Some of it is from a couple of years back. Uh, and a lot of it actually has been posted on my Instagram. I Every week I post the weekly reminders on Mondays and some of it's going to come directly from that. And as you guys know, when you post to Instagram, you're a little bit limited on the amount that you can put in the caption box. So I hope that today I can kind of expand on some of those ideas a little bit further. All right, let's get into it. First thing, I just posted about it recently because I had a great conversation with Joshua Medcalf and we talked about six ways to get out of your own way. I think a lot of times people, they get out on this new journey, whether it's a fitness journey or some sort of goal that they want to chase, and they end up kind of tripping over their own feet. And Josh and I talked about what are kind of the six ways people trip over them their own self. And I think the first one is the most powerful one. And he talks about in his book, Chop Wood, Carry Water. And it's the idea of surrendering the outcome. And the part in the book I really like is, quote, it is the one who has surrendered the outcome who has the greatest chance of success. It is the one who has surrendered to the fact that they might fail who has the greatest likelihood of not failing. Until you surrender the outcome, you will always be the greatest enemy to your own success. In order to reach your greatest potential, you must operate with a heart posture of gratitude, a commitment to the controllable, to the controllables, surrender the outcome, and trust the process. And this is pretty counterintuitive when you look at our culture, uh, especially in the United States. We're very uh, cautious and uh, we praise 
the accolades, the awards, the people on top of the podium. And ultimately, a lot of that stuff is completely out of our control. The results are out of our control. What people do around us in some sports, especially one like CrossFit, is completely out of our control. And I really like the idea Josh talked about, about surrendering the outcome. You talk about that word surrender. It's pretty sharp and uh, it has a lot of depth to it. When you surrender something, it's no longer in your sight of mind. You're not thinking about it every day. And just as the quote says, once you can let go of the outcome, you can start to focus more on the day-to-day tasks and the stress goes away and you start to really commit to what you can and can't control. So surrendering the outcome is probably the number one key way to get out of your own way. A couple of the other ones were be present, stay patient, which we'll talk about more later, focus on your journey and not somebody else's, changing the story in your head, which we'll talk about more later. And then another one that I want to uh, expand on now, which is defining your own success. I've had several sports psychologists and mental uh, uh, performance coaches on the show the last four years. And a lot of it comes back to defining your own success. And what does that mean? Well, it means getting crystal clear about what success looks like to you. Because if you don't, society will. As I mentioned before, society is going to judge you on your accolades, the amount of finals MVPs that you have, the championships that you have, um, depending on your sport, how many, how many victories that you have, whatever that may look like. It's easy to judge somebody based on that. If you're not sure what that looks like, watch ESPN for a day. A lot of the debates that go on are who's the greatest in what sport. And a lot of it comes down to their accolades and their numbers. So one way to define your own success is to take yourself to your deathbed and ask yourself, what is it that truly matters to me in this one life that I'm gifted? Dr. Jim Lair taught me this idea about journaling from the back end looking forward. So taking yourself to the end and asking yourself, what truly matters to you? And chances are when you're laying on your deathbed, you're not going to be thinking much about the championships, the MVPs, uh, the wins that you had. There's going to be other things that probably come up and matter to you more. And so having that idea, that insight to look ahead can help you right now. And I know that can be scary for some people, especially people that don't like to think about death or talk about death, but it can really challenge you and help bring more uh, clarity to your life by just simply journaling. What does success look like to me? And what is it true? What truly matters to me when I am laying on my deathbed? I mentioned Dr. Jim Lair is one of my favorite guests. He's a one of the most famous sports psychologists of all time. He's written, he's written several uh, uh, books, bestsellers, just a great individual. A quote that one of my favorite quotes from him is, Who you become as a result of the chase is the most important thing. I'll say that again because it has so much depth. Who you become as a result of the chase is the most important thing. In athletics or maybe in just real world in general, we're all chasing something, right? We're all trying to become the best versions of ourselves. Other people are chasing a salary, a job, um, what have you. It could be anything. We're all chasing and pursuing something. But at the end of the day, who are you becoming in result of the chase? Uh, along the way, are you being selfish? Are you being a dick? Are you pushing people down while you're trying to rise up to the occasion? 
who are who is the type of person that you're becoming in the pursuit of what you're trying to get after dr jim lair challenges you to think about that and he says it's about getting the scorecard right i mentioned it before the scorecards in society looks like wins losses accolades stats status recognition and instead I think the challenge is more about getting your own scorecard right. What does your scorecard look like? What do you want to be judged on? What are some things that you want to hone in on? And and how do you want to grow as a professional, as an athlete, as a husband, wife? What are some of the things that really matter to you? Alongside Dr. Uh, Jim Lair, I also had Dr. Jim Aframo on the show with the, the author of The Champion's Mind, fantastic book. He talks about the idea of being ego-oriented versus mastery-oriented. I love this combination because this is the, exactly the same thing about getting your scorecard right. A mastery-oriented approach is all about the growth, the enjoyment, the process, longevity, and curiosity, whereas ego is all about awards, accolades, stats, and recognition. So in your life, are you more ego-oriented in your pursuit to become the best version of yourself or in your sport or in your profession? Or are you more mastery-oriented, more focused on the enjoyment, the process, curious on how you can be better, longevity, growth mindset? Something to consider when you start to think about becoming who you become is the result. Sorry, who you become is a result of the most important thing. Get the scorecard right. Are you ego-oriented or are you mastery-oriented? Next one. There is nothing either good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. Shakespeare said this. I have a very uh, awesome story that goes with this. A lot of you guys have heard it before. If you turn in, tuned into the Ben Bergeron podcast, you heard him tell it. If you didn't, I'll tell it here now. And it's the story of the wise farmer. A farmer and his son had a beloved horse who helped the family earn a living. One day, the horse ran away and their neighbors exclaimed, your horse ran away. What terrible luck. And the farmer replied, maybe. A few days later, the horse returned home, leading a few wild horses back to the farm as well. The neighbors shouted, your horse has returned and brought several horses home with him. What great luck, the farmer replied. Maybe. Later that week, the farmer's son was trying to break one of the horses, and he threw him to the ground, breaking his leg. The neighbors cried, your son broke his leg. What terrible luck, the farmer replied. Maybe. A few weeks later, soldiers from the National Army marched through town, recruiting all boys for the army. They did not take the farmer's son because he had broken his leg. The neighbors shouted, your boy is spared. What tremendous luck. To which the farmer replied, maybe. Nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. It's easy for us to fall into the trap of labeling everything that lands on our plate as good or bad. When in reality, we just don't have enough time, information, knowledge, or perspective to know what type of impact that event's going to have on us in the long run. I think sometimes what seems like the worst event ever actually ends up catapulting us into bigger and better seasons of our lives. Interestingly enough, there's been multiple studies and surveys from cancer survivors that report that if they were granted a wish to do life over again, cancer-free, they would choose not to take it. Reason being, they say that they wouldn't be the strong person they are today without going through the adversity that was thrown their way. I think most of us have experienced several moments of difficulty. It might not be cancer, but it could be something that was tough in the beginning or deemed tough and ended up being a blessing in disguise. 
whether it be something like a sickness, a breakup, losing a job, not qualifying for the CrossFit games, a flight getting delayed or canceled, failing a project, the list goes on. So instead of rushing to judgment, aim to be calm, open-minded, and view your perceived obstacles as opportunities. And remember, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. Next one. What seems like boring progress compounds into exceptional results. Shane Parrish. When Albert Einstein was asked what the most powerful force in the universe was, his spontaneous answer was the power of compound interest. Warren Buffett, arguably the most successful investor of all time, gave the same response when he was asked the most important factor to his success. As these gentlemen are two fairly credible resources, they must have a point. If you invest $10,000 with a starting annual interest rate of 5%, you have $10,500 at the end of the first year, but almost $27,000 after 20 years. Most of us are familiar with compound interest and its significance for our savings account, but you can also reap the same benefits without investing any money. If you improve 1% every day compounded daily, that adds up to 3,778% a year meaning you are 38 times better than when you started. It's not the few decisions of enormous proportion that makes us happy and successful, but it's the many accumulated, small, and sometimes boring ones that we do consistently over a long period of time. In the beginning, the effects are fractional, but given time, they become radical. Next one, flow follows focus. Stephen Kotler. Stephen Kotler came out of the MyFit podcast, brought his energy is one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done because I'm so fascinated with the idea of flow. If you've been following me or the show, you probably know what flow is. If you don't, I'll catch you up. Flow is that moment in time where time vanishes, effort becomes effortless. You're in the zone. You're in deep work. Nothing else matters around you. Writers, Authors call it the moment when the words are just flying off the page. You're not putting much thought into it because it's just going. Uh, basketball players call it when the uh, call it getting in the zone, and it feels like the hoop instead of the regular size is a hula hoop size because they can't miss. And it's not just for athletes too. Uh, any sort of person has been into a flow state. Some people also talk about when they're playing an instrument and they're just kind of in that flowy type state where everything is just moving and effort becomes effortless. And I wanted to break down, uh, Stephen is the lead researcher in flow uh, and he owns a company called the Flow Research Collective and has written several books about the subjects. I believe he's the best in the industry. And I wanted to talk about how can we get more into flow? He says that flow is the most addictive state on earth, and it's more addictive than anything else, including drugs. It's very powerful, and it's something that we all can recognize. He even says that when we're at a concert, there's group flow going on with the audience singing along, and we're also watching the performer in flow. It's a pretty magical experience when you think about that. So how can we get more flow in our lives? He talks about the people that are happiest in life experience the, the most flow. So one way to increase happiness is to get into flow. And flow actually is a cool story, side story. Flow changed his life. Uh, Stephen Kotler had Lyme's disease, was on the verge of suicide. And one of his friends brought him out into the ocean as kind of a latch ditch effort to help, to help Stephen get out of his, his two-year funk. And he experienced flow on the surfboard in the ocean and uh, kind of snapped him out of depression and became 
the person that he is today, which is ultra successful. So it's obviously really important. One of the things he talks about are flow triggers or other way uh, or applicable ways for us to get into flow. He's come up, him and his company has come up with about 22 or 23 of them. And I want to walk you through a couple of them today because I think they're going to be super imperative to getting into flow, finding more success and happiness. And it's also something that's not super complicated. We can all start to put this into our daily lives right now. The first and uh, one that he talks about is having clear goals. Again, sounds simple. Have clear goals. In order to get into flow, you got to be able to know where you're going. I think a lot of people in life, they float through life. They don't really have a clear direction of where they're going. Maybe that's lack of intention, or it's more about, excuse me, being unclear with the goals ahead. And so instead of having a goal like, I want to lose weight, maybe be more specific about that. How much weight? What does it look like? When do you want it by? Be very clear about where you want to go. The next part is have complete concentration. And I say this and I can already see the people rolling your eyes because, oh, of course, you got to be focused. But having complete concentration is rare these days. I think um, I had Johan Hari on the show and he talked about, I I might butcher the stat, but it was a uh, study of CEOs and they can't get, what was it? Oh, it was 15 minutes is the most time CEOs go without getting interrupted. 15 minutes out of their day. They did a large study. It's like 500 CEOs. 15 minutes was the most they could get go without getting interrupted by colleagues, emails, whatever. Complete concentration is more rare than it's ever been. But once you find it, you can allow yourself to get into deep flow. You're not able to get into deep flow without complete concentration. So what does this mean? It means that you got to be able to block out all distractions and interruptions and create a conducive environment. Eliminate the friction. I think about setting up the room for success. I give an example quite often about um, putting the Peloton bike right next to the couch or next to the bed in the bedroom. Not very conducive to what you're trying to ultimately find and trying to uh, succeed in. Instead, set up your environment for success. I talk about this a lot too with nutrition. You know, If you want to set yourself up for success, it's very simple. Don't buy the bad foods. One, don't put them in your pantry. Two, set yourself up so that you're not having to swim upstream and you can ultimately make it easier on yourself to succeed. So have complete concentration, block out all distractions and interruptions, and set up your environment for success. The next piece I really find interesting is the skills to challenge ratio. And Stephen Kotler talks about the number four, 4% is where we want to live. So we kind of have this current level of skills. And Stephen wants us to challenge ourselves to kind of live just outside of our comfort zone, not too much, but just a little bit. And he uses the number 4% to give people kind of a a tangible uh, thing to latch onto. Most of us, I like to compare this to the fitness space. Most of us know that we come into a workout and it is way too difficult. The rep schemes are way too challenging or it's way too long or it's something we haven't done in many months, if not years. It becomes uh, not only too difficult, but we just want to kind of check out because it's like, you know what? This isn't for me. This is way too hard and this place isn't for me. So that's living way above the skills to challenge ratio. Conversely, living way below the skills to challenge ratio, 30, 40% under your current threshold, it becomes too easy. You get bored and same thing applies. You just want to check out. So instead, using the gym example, you want to find training exercises, workouts 
rep schemes that are just above your current threshold, 4%. What does this do? It creates flow. It creates just enough challenge for you. It gets you to adapt, your body to adapt, and also brings you back the next day without absolutely killing yourself day after day. I used a fitness example for the skills to challenge ratio, but this really could uh, parlay into any parts of your life. So find yourself Yes, it's important to get out of your comfort zone, but not too much where you want to check out and and beat yourself up, but just enough where you have to bend, but not break. Another cool part of getting into flow is getting feedback. At first, I wasn't sure what this meant, but Steven talked about why people love the sport of bowling so much. Well, one of the reasons why is because you get immediate feedback. As soon as the ball gets let go of your hands, within a couple seconds, you find out, was it a good shot? Was it a bad shot? Did it go in the gutter or did you get a strike? Immediate feedback is something that provides more flow and also, quite honestly, some bit of entertainment. So if you're kind of struggling with getting into flow, another piece of advice I'd give you is to get some feedback. Ask a colleague, ask a boss, ask some more from your coach. Get some feedback from people to help you get into flow. The last one, probably the most important one is align the task with your passion and purpose. As I talked about for, before with the skills to challenge ratio, if it's not meaningful meaningful to you or it doesn't align with your passion or purpose, it's really hard to get into flow with something you just don't care about. So somehow, whether it's your work or whether it's training um, or something with your kids, find a way that you can align that task with your passion and purpose. Once the meaning goes up, you're also going to find that the opportunities to get into flow will increase. It's not like you're going to get into flow automatically seven days a week all the time. It's pretty much impossible, but you can definitely increase your odds by these flow triggers. Have clear goals, complete concentration, block out all distractions, create a conducive environment, um, understand the skills to challenge ratio, get feedback, and align the task with your passion and purpose. Next one. The greatest threat to success is boredom and impatience from Shane Parrish. Again, the greatest threat to success is boredom and impatience. You've kind of seen a theme a little bit here of those two words popping up, enjoyment, the opposite of boredom, and being patient. The only way to become good at something is to practice the ordinary basics for an uncommon length of time. Most people get bored. They want excitement. They want something to talk about, and no one talks about the boring basics. For example, we know that the dollar cost averaging into an index fund is likely to generate wealth, but cryptocurrency will give us a much bigger thrill. Boredom encourages you to stop doing what you know works and do something that might work. Another way to mess up a good thing is to try and accelerate the natural pace of things into an unnatural one. A good idea taken to the extreme is always a bad idea. Working out for 15 hours a day won't make you healthier. It'll get you injured. Investing with a lot of leverage won't make you rich faster. It'll wipe you out. A lack of patience changes the outcome. And certain things just take a certain amount of time. You're not going to learn guitar in one day. You can't go through an entire pregnancy in one day. There are certain things that have a natural speed of time, and yet we want to always rush that process for some reason. It's hard to be above average if you can't find a way to do the same thing over and over and over again. As Bruce Lee observed, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once, 
but I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. In a world of social media, we glorify the results and not the process, as I talked about earlier. We see the kick that knocks someone out, but not the years of effort that went into perfecting it. We see the results, but we don't see the hard work. The difference between good and great results is often found in consistently doing the boring things you know you should do exactly when you feel like doing them the least. A lack of patience changes the outcome. So my question would be, in what areas of your life can you be more patient? Another question is, what memories can you recall that you were very patient and what was the outcome? Some things to consider. How can you be more patient? And when was the last time you were patient? And what was the outcome? Next one, another one from Shane Parrish. Quote, the most powerful story in the world is the one you tell yourself. This is a huge one. I could probably spend, I know I've spent a couple of episodes interviewing people about this. Uh, it's very powerful and kind of the foundation to self-development, self-improvement, becoming the best version of yourself. And there's a story that goes along with this. There's a guy named William James, who is a philosopher and a psychologist, very famous in the early 1900s. And there was a convention going on. I don't remember what year this was. And people uh, traveled all throughout the country to be at this convention because they wanted to hear William James speak. Obviously, during this time, there wasn't social media or areas where you could hear a lot of these people speak. And also, William James didn't put out a lot of information, but people knew this guy and they knew all the research and his books and um, just kind of his status when it came to psychology. So people spent a lot of money during that time to go hear him speak. And a lot of people, they get to this convention and the place is packed wall to wall. And the first speaker comes up to introduce William James and goes on for about 20 to 30 minutes, uh, story says, of going through all his accolades, talking about everything William James is doing, um, what his research looks like, and kind of just rambling and bragging about William James. After he finally introduces him, the crowd obviously goes wild because they traveled so far to and spent so much money to hear him. Everybody sits down and William grabs the microphone, clears his throat and says, people by and large become what they think of themselves. Put the mic back, walked off stage and the place went nuts. There's mixed emotions all over. Some people were just so angry because they spent so much money and time and they all, all they heard was one sentence from the most famous psychologist in the world at that time. Other people were gleaming. They were trying to find pen and paper to write down what he said because it obviously had to mean a lot. Again, the quote was, people by and large become what they think of themselves. As you know, or you may or may not know if you follow the show or know me, I love quotes and I love really deep quotes. I love thinking about them. I love asking my guests about quotes and this one just sticks. And I think it makes so much sense. All of us have an inner voice. For some of us, our inner voice is our biggest critic. For others, it's our best friend. Our inner voice comes and goes and can also show up in various areas of our life. For an athlete, I think the inner voice is the most pivotal piece of success. And when used in the right way, your inner voice can be either a weapon or a weakness. And coaches can only say and do so much. At some point, you're going to be on the floor, the mat, or on the field by yourself 
with nothing more than you and your inner voice. Personally, I believe your inner voice is more powerful than any coach you'll ever have. And additionally, the power of the stories that you tell yourself is something that's been talked about and researched for a long time. I mentioned William James almost a hundred years ago. There's been much more than that. Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius said, our life is what our thoughts make it. And the happiness of your life depends on the quality of your thoughts. There's also a lot of mentions in the Bible. Uh, I said earlier, Shakespeare said, there's nothing good or bad, only thinking makes it so. Uh, American transcendalists, Ralph Walder Emerson also penned the phrase, a man is what he thinks about all day long. So whether it's new or old or classical or modern, all of these expressions are variations on one thing, theme. We are telling ourselves stories about ourselves practically every waking minute. We're establishing various prophecies that then we act on and almost automatically and unconsciously fulfill them. So being able to turn the stories in your head from tragic to triumphant involves first being aware that you have the stories. You first have to understand there is a story in your head or a voice in your head. We can't really go down uh, further if we don't do that. We first need to, it's almost like crawl before we walk, walk before we jog, jog before we run. We first need to understand and be aware you do have a voice in your head. Second, you need to exercise the discipline to ensure that the stories and statements you do make to yourself are first true. I think a lot of times somebody will say something and a lot of my experience comes from the gym. So they'll say, they'll say something at the gym. And sometimes I want to ask, do you know if that's true? Is that, a, is that a true story you're telling yourself? Or is that something that somebody told you and you don't really know if it's true? A lot of the stories in our head are planted, um, for lack of a better word, from um, significant others, uh, parents, friends growing up from other people, media. And we don't really even test the fact that it's true. We just believe it and start saying it. And the more times we say it, the more it turns into reality. So be aware of, are your statements full of truth? Are they full of positive energy? Are they optimistic? Are they enthusiastic? Being aware of the stories in your head is something that takes time um, it takes some silence, some meditation. Uh, it's not, it's not going to happen in a, in a busy environment when you're full in a, in a room full of people. So I'd encourage you maybe to start to journal about what are the stories that are going through your head? Um, or, you know, what's the story that's preventing you from being the type of person that you want to become? Again, I bring up the gym a lot, but some people that I'll hear before signing up say, I'm just not fit enough to join your gym. And that couldn't be more untrue, right? What's that story that you're telling yourself that's telling you that you have to be at a certain level before you, a certain fitness level before you get into the gym? Again, there are a lot of experts in this field. I'm not going to pretend like I'm an expert on the inner voice, uh, but it's definitely a major concept and a major uh, foundational piece of becoming the best version of yourself. Because really, you could train all the time, you could have a great diet, you could, um, you know, get your eight hours of sleep, do all those boring basics I talked about earlier. But if the stories in your head are beating you up and you can't, you can't live with the person um, that that's in your head, uh, that's going to be a, a different conversation. We can't move forward outside of ourselves until we've worked on what's inside of ourselves, and that's in between the ears. And another thing I like to talk tell people about is. You know, the, the thoughts or the stories in your head, some people are more mean to themselves than they've ever been to anybody else. So a question I like to ask people is, 
would you be okay if the thoughts in your head showed up on a jumbotron at a minnesota vikings game or would you be embarrassed of the things that go on in your head the stories that go on in your head to be publicized on a national um uh, scoreboard what would be your thoughts also another thing i like to tell people that i got from joshua is joshua metcalf is would you be friends with the type of people who talk to you the way you talk to yourself again would you be friends with the people that talk or people that talk to you the way you talk to yourself i think that's really a powerful piece to think on some of the things we tell ourselves would you say that to your best friend probably not a lot of the times people just need to be nicer to themselves and that way we can start to open the door into becoming the best version of yourself so again the most powerful story in the world is the one you tell yourself next one slow down on the advice giving and stay curious a little bit longer as i look back on 180 episodes there are definitely a few that pop out that were very monumental in my growth and has kind of transcended who i am not only as a person but also as a coach and this is one of them that that really just sticks out in a book i have continued to reference and recommend to people on my show and in my circle and that's the that's the book called the coaching habit by michael bungay stainer and again this one was a huge hit we talked about the power of asking questions and mbs has done a couple ted talks and really devoted his life to the idea that we're all advice monsters all we want to do is give advice and give advice and give advice mostly because it makes us feel good uh, whether we try to or not it makes us look better than our counterpart because we're almost talking down to them giving advice and he kind of flips that on its head and says you know what your advice is shit. <laughs> he said it's never it's never good because rarely do we ever have enough information to give accurate advice and so his whole book which is a bestseller sold over a million copies is about asking the right questions so you can lead your clients your colleague your counterpart your spouse to the answer themselves for the coaches out there you know that you could tell your clients time and time and time again the power of getting eight hours of sleep and why that's so important and you could just drill that till the cows come home but if they don't ever realize it themselves it's never going to happen because they never made a connection themselves so the best way to do that is to just continue to ask questions and mbs has a series of seven questions that can help get some clarity for you and your clients and also draw them to uh, find some alignment with the things that they want most so i'll run through a couple of those because i think the the information is absolutely gold the first question is the kickstart question and it's what's on your mind and notice the verbiage in these questions the exact words that he uses and also the tone that goes with it what's on your mind is very difficult then what's up and it's definitely difficult or sorry different than how are you both what's up and how are you reply or require a one word response that's usually a lie nobody's ever going to say oh, i'm okay i've had a pretty rough day this is what's going on and spill their story what's on your mind gives them a chance to reflect and think about what they're thinking about the second question he talks about is the most powerful coaching question any coach can ever adopt and it's a simple one it's and what else this is brilliant i've been using it ever since i read the book most times when you have a conversation with people they have more to say but uh they just don't feel comfortable or confident 
letting out more than than what is initially said. So what's on your mind? They might give you the first thing. Instead of just going with that or ending the conversation, one easy thing you could do is add, and what else? And watch them. Your counterpart might just start flowing out with more things to say, and it might help gain some more clarity of what's going on in their life because it's never just one thing. So start to use, if you get anything out of this, this segment, ask the question, and what else? The third piece, I really like this question. I've been using this one a lot too. The question is, what's the real challenge here for you? The key on this question is the last two words, for you. If you ask the question, what's the real challenge? It gives your counterpart an out. They have an opportunity to blame somebody else or say, you know, the challenge is Becky's not listening to me. When you say, what's the real challenge here for you? It starts to create ownership for your, your, your counterpart. Again, it gets them to reflect on what type of um, opportunity, again, what type of ownership can they take in this situation? Uh, and maybe forces some action on what's the real challenge here for you. So again, add those last two words, create some clarity. The fourth question is, how can I help? Sometimes um, we talked about this in our episode was sometimes, especially in marriages, women in particular, they just want to be, I shouldn't say just, they want to be heard and they don't need a solution all the time. Men are much more solution oriented and we always want to fix problems. Tell me what to do. I'll fix it. Where sometimes women want to be heard and that is it. They just want an ear or maybe even a shoulder to cry on. They want to be heard. So instead of assuming that there needs to be a solution, ask the question, how can I help? You might be surprised at what your counterpart really wants or needs from you. The fifth question is, what do you want? I love this question because it's so direct and it gives people clarity on exactly what they're looking for or exactly what they want. And these questions don't have to be in this specific order. Sometimes what do you want can be an early question that um, kind of springs you forward and doesn't require seven questions at all. I think uh, I heard a quote once that says something like, you can spend you can spend 10 minutes and save yourself 10 years. You can spend 10, min- 10 minutes thinking about what you want so you don't waste 10 years. I think there's a lot of value in that. Continually asking yourself, and I know a lot of Stoics talk about this too, can sit, uh, talk to yourself about what is essential and what is it that I want. Brings a lot of clarity. Next question requires a lot of deep thinking as well, so I love it. It's, if you're saying yes to this, what are you saying no to? So again, a gym reference. If somebody is um, wanting to go down the path of, of qualifying for the Boston Marathon. So if you're saying yes to this goal, this training, what are you saying no to? This creates a lot of clarity for people on, well, it probably means not staying up late every night. It probably means um, not drinking on the weekends. What are the things you're saying no to? It's good for the coach client to clarify some of these things. And it can also help the client or your counterpart, just understand what the lifestyle is going to look like when you're saying yes to something. Ultimately, just answering this question might be enough for them to say, eh, you know what? Maybe you're right. This maybe, this maybe isn't for me. So again, if you're saying yes to this, what are you saying no to? The last one, what was most useful for you here? Uh, I relate this a lot to some of the books I've read. Some of my favorite books, I really like at the end of chapters when they talk about, they do kind of a a summary of what you just learned. 
I interviewed um, a couple of guys that wrote, um, what was it? Memory, uh, make it stick. Yes. And this was about how you can create long lasting memories and how you can also do that through reading. I think sometimes we'll read a book or a chapter or even a page and we'll forget what the heck was it that I just read. So one of the best ways to do that, to, to ensure that that doesn't happen is at the end of each chapter, write down the three takeaways. And I've kind of adopted this format with my podcast and I go through bullet points at, and I put them out in my initial podcast when I release it. And then I'm also trying to, at the end of our conversation, kind of button up, what are the three to five major things I've learned here? What was most valuable for me? So how can you use that with your clients, your counterparts, your spouses, your partners is, is asking them what was most useful for you here? That's going to create a little bit of, of value for you. Think about this. If you're a personal trainer and you just got done with a 60-minute session with a client, one of the things you could end your session with is asking, hey, what was most valuable for you here? And they say, man, I really enjoyed um, the kettlebell work that we did. Uh, it was fun for me. I've never done that before. That right there gives you some intuition for the next session. You find out what's important for them. Maybe you start implementing more kettlebell work because you know they enjoy that. How different is asking what was most useful for you here rather than saying, hey, how was that session? They replied, good. You don't know what they loved most. So ending a conversation or a podcast or a meeting or uh, a personal training session or a workout with the question, what was most valuable for you here? Next one, confidence is a sense of certainty about your ability, which allows you to bypass conscious thought and execute unconsciously. This one's all about creating confidence. And I think it's a subject that a lot of people want to know more about. There's a lot of people out there that want to learn how to be more confident. And something that I learned while reading The Confident Mind, which is a fantastic book by Dr. Nate Zinser, who I also had on the podcast, is that confidence is a learned skill and it requires continued refinement and can be developed in all areas of your life. If you're in school and you're really confident about your education, that's just one area of your life. Just because you're really confident in one area doesn't mean you're confident in all areas of life. It's a learned skill. It's a learned practice. And each uh, bucket of your life, if you will, has to be practiced, learned, and implemented to be more confident. And we talked about a couple ways that you can increase your confidence. And the first one is one that comes up a lot, and it's being able to accept what you can and can't change. A quote that is in the book that uh, Dr. Nate says is, quote, the enemy gets a vote. Sometimes it's hard for us to remember this because we get so competitive, but sometimes in sports, the other team is going to make a great play. Sometimes in, in a CrossFit competition, somebody's going to make a huge lift. You got to remember that that's some of that is a part of the game. Some people are going to make great plays. The enemy gets a vote. And chances are, depending on the occasion, of course, situation, you might not have any control over that, over what happens there, especially in a CrossFit competition. I know I've talked about this numerous times, but when there's 10 lanes on the floor and it's an individual sport, you can't control anything that happens to your right and left. So just remember the enemy gets a vote and understand what you can and can't change. That can have a direct correlate into your confidence. Another thing to think about is be energetically curious about your imperfections. They're valuable sources of information. Um, one of my favorite parts in the book 
was when Dr. Nate said, the athletes who strive for perfection while successfully controlling their negative reactions to imperfections experience less anxiety and more self-confidence during competitions. Strive for perfections, strive for perfection while successfully controlling your negative reaction to imperfections. Being able to control what you can, knowing what you can and can't control is a direct correlate to being more confident. Another part that's big is how to be confident in the unknown. I think it's easy to be confident when you walk into the gym that you've been a part of for almost 10 years. You know what to expect. You know the people. It's a lot easier to be confident in an environment you've been um, involved in for a long time. But what happens when you go to a new school? You get a new job. Um, you meet some new people or you're on, a, you're on a date with somebody you've never met. Dr. Nate talks about some ways that you can get confident in the unknown. The first is gather as many visuals of the new environment as you can. From a sports lens here, if you're playing, if you're a baseball player and you're playing a road game, you're going on the road to an environment you've never been, and you know typically you play a lot better at home than you do on the road, the advice is get as much visual con uh, content as you can. So what this could look like is Google image online. What does the field look like? Um, what does the stadium look like on the outside? What do the locker rooms look like? Try to get as much in your mind uh, from a visualization standpoint as you can before you get into the environment. The second one is walk around. Once you get there, walk around and get comfortable with your surroundings. Have you ever heard get there early? I know that's a foreign concept for some people, but Get to your um, get to your location early. Maybe it's a big board meeting. Get there really early and park and walk around a little bit. Get very familiar with where you're at. Uh, we just had an intern at the gym that um, it just took her her driver's test, and I gave her this example. She's going about forty minutes away from home to go do this. I said, drive up there, get up there early, drive around their streets a little bit, get comfortable where you're at. There's no downside of getting someplace early and getting your feet wet and getting comfortable with the surroundings. And then the last one was use visualization. See yourself performing in specific spots on the field. So if you can go to the football field early, walk around the field and take a look, envision yourself catching a pass right here, envision yourself kicking a field goal from this spot, start to replay the images or play the images in your mind to create confidence once you're walking into that unknown area. And then you'll quickly find out the unknown starts to go away and, be, and it starts to become home quicker than you think. Another way to think about, or another way to get more confident is to think, view, and overcome your imperfections. There's three different ways to go about this. One, think of each and every mistake or error or setback as temporary. Confidence seems to go down when I think of golf a lot when you hit a bad shot and you know, this is the, the thought that goes through your head is gosh, this is classic me, classic DJ. Now I'm going to have now, because my first shot was bad, they're all going to be bad because the first hole went well, the rest of the day is going to go bad. Instead, think of your mistakes or errors and setbacks as temporary. Second thing, think of each and every mistake or error or setback as limited. You had a bad shot. Hey, that's my one bad shot for the day. That's it. I got it. It's taken care of. It's done. It's limited. It's not going to be all throughout this, this afternoon here. Think of them as limited. Last one, probably the most important. Think of your various setbacks and imperfect moments 
as non-representative of yourself. You hit a bad shot. The last thing you want to say is, oh, man, that's just who I am. I just don't play well on Sundays. Once you start to, again, we talked about the power of words and the story in your head. Once you start attaching yourself into your imperfections, you start to see your confidence go down and obviously your game go down. So you're not a representation of the errors that you make. Detach yourself from those. Those are not the type of person or people that you want to become. Detach from those and think of your imperfections or your errors as temporary, limited, and non-representative of yourself. Something applicable that you can go do right now is to what Dr. Nate calls is build your mental bank account. I love this. He talks about create your top 10. This makes me think of the good old days of ESPN when they used to have top 10 plays, something I used to watch all the time over and over when I was a kid. So much, so much fun, so much joy to watch the top 10 plays from the day before. And this concept is similar. It's reflect and write down the 10 most encouraging and most energizing memories out of the dark recess of your mind and polish up those jewels of thought so they re- they radiate brilliance back to you. Again, create your top 10, write them down. Maybe you have videos where you can put them in some sort of a file or pictures, or maybe it's a notebook, but write down the top 10 best moments of your life and the most energizing memories that you can generate. As human beings, we have a negative bias. We always think of the bad moments of our lives and our brains are kind of just wired to think about those. And I encourage you, if you want to become more confident, start to think and marinate on some of the best, most energizing memories of your life. A good time to do this too is right before a game or right before a competition. I've used this several times and it's worked really well for me. Look back, scroll back. Maybe it's through your own Instagram because we usually post our own highlight reel on our Instagram is look back at some of the most energizing and, and um, uh, uplifting videos that of your training before stepping on the floor. And that just, I, it's hard to explain what that does um, um, psychologically. It makes you feel good. It obviously, in, or for me, it's increased confidence because you're thinking about all the great things that have happened before taking the floor. So build your bent, sorry, build your mental bank account by creating your top 10 most encouraging and energizing memories of your life. Next one. It's important to be consistently good rather than occasionally great. I heard this on Nick Bear's podcast. I'm not sure if he was the first one to say it or not, but I absolutely love the quote. Consistency is about effort. Consistency is about showing up when you don't want to. Consistency is about thinking in decades while executing today. Consistency is about putting in the daily work even when the results aren't visible. The problem is we get bored, we get distracted, or we just don't feel like doing it today. We want to tackle a new project, so we dive in only to walk away a few weeks later because we didn't make much progress. We want to get in shape, so we sign up for the gym with the best of intentions, only to stop going a month later. We want to learn how to play an instrument, yet we give up a few weeks later. We want to eat better, so we buy healthy food. We're back to junk food a few weeks later. It's as if we start to roll a boulder halfway up a mountain and tell ourselves that we'll come back to it another time. And the minute our effort drops below a certain threshold, the boulder rolls back down the hill. 
How many people do you know who are consistent in what they say and do? I want you to close your eyes and think about this person. They consistently show up on time. They're consistent with their word. They're consistent in various social settings. They're consistently getting better at their craft. My guess is you enjoy being around this person. You admire them and they probably have above average success. Achievement has a cost and it's paid with patience and consistency. Where are you lacking consistency in your life? How can you be more consistent? What does consistent look like for you? I think one opposite or um, one antonym, I should say, of consistency could be intensity. A lot of people think they need intensity in their life. They want to train really hard once a week, where what they really need to do is be consistently good rather than occasionally great. James Clear wrote the best-selling book, Atomic Habits, and he talks about building habits and the power of consistency and says that in order to create a habit, one thing that you can do is instead of showing up to the gym once a month and hitting a really good workout, he says, show up to the gym every single day. You think every single day. He said, I don't care if you walk in, do one bicep curl and walk out, just show up every single day. And I think that comes back to how important it is to be consistently good rather than occasionally great. A lot of people want to meditate, be able to meditate for an hour. And they, or, or if they want to become um, a meditator, if you will, they want to bite off more than they can chew. Where rather what they'd probably be better at is taking one minute a day to meditate. The answer isn't always intensity. Rather, it's a lot, it's usually a lot more about being consistent. Consistency over intensity. Next one. The most overlooked strategy for success is patience. Patience is a competitive advantage. In a surprising number of fields, you can find success if you are simply willing to do the reasonable thing longer than most people. This is by James Clear. There's a lot of stories out there. You guys may have heard it before, but the bamboo tree is probably my favorite. For those of you guys that don't know, uh, bamboo trees uh, are 94 feet tall. They're one of the biggest trees in the world. And I don't know how much you guys know about the story, but basically um, the, the growth of the bamboo tree is remarkable. You plant the seed and you water that seed every day, and it could take up to three to four years before you start seeing it grow. However, once, it, once the tree starts bursting through the ground, it grows at an exponential rate and up to 94 feet tall. And you can parlay that over into life. It's being able to be patient. I talked about it before. Be patient when you can't visibly see the outcomes, but you know they're compounding and they're compounding underground. But day after day, it's being patient, being consistent, watering the bamboo tree and staying around long enough, doing the boring thing over and over again, watering the tree, watering the tree. The boring compounds into success. The most overlooked strategy for success is patience. Next one, get what you want from people by using no-oriented questions from FBI hostage negotiator, Chris Voss. 
Chris Voss is one of my favorite people on this earth. I had him on the show uh, about a year ago, and my dad came on as well. And we actually had a chance to fly out to Las Vegas and have dinner with him. And we've kind of created a relationship back and forth since. He's going to be coming on the show again soon. And Chris is, it's hard to explain the guy. He is an incredibly uh, intelligent and uh, just likable guy who has a lot of great information. He wrote a book called Never Split the Difference probably my favorite book I've ever read. Uh, and it, it parlays over into um, anybody. It doesn't have to be a hostage negotiator. Of course, that's where he came from. But basically what I'm saying is negotiations happen all around us. It can be a negotiation with your partner. It can be a negotiation for your salary. It could be a negotiation at a car dealership. I don't know, but they're, or with your kids, but negotiations are all around us. And Chris has an extensive background negotiating with some of the baddest human beings this world has to offer um, all throughout the world and in countries that none of us would dare step foot in. And um, he talks about in his book, a lot of different practical ways that you can start to use some of these um, concepts within your life. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of them, but one that's kind of fun to do that I've been doing a lot lately is using no-oriented questions. So why no-oriented questions? Well, it used to be the opposite. It used to be, and might might still be, and Chris might argue with it, is in sales, uh, uh, a lot of um, coaches would um, uh, coach their clients to get their, get their counterpart to say yes, right? Um, somehow find them, find them to get them ways to say yes. The more yeses you get, the more chances you are closer to getting your yes, which is you're ultimately, ultimately getting your sale. And Chris says to flip that. He says, get them to say no. Why? Because saying no makes them feel good. When we're able to say no to something, we feel good. We feel safe. We feel in control. So what does this look like? Well, a lot of times, I'm sure we've been called by uh, telemarketers that say, hey, is now a good time to talk? And uh, how many times do you guys say, yeah, it's a great time when you know it's not a great time or you, or you know you just don't want to talk to them because I don't know what you're going to try to sell me. So a simple flip is to flip that on its head and say, hey, is now a bad time to talk? Well, no. What do you want to talk about? So being able to get no out of your clients is actually one way to get more of what you want. There's a couple of different ways that you can do this. Uh, so one thing could be uh, the dishes, right? That's a common story with, with, uh, with partners and spouses. So instead of saying, hey, will you do the dishes? You just flip it. Say something like, hey, how unreasonable would it be for you to do the dishes? Oh, no, that's not, that's not unreasonable. I can do that. Another one that you could do, um, maybe it's taking the trash out. Hey, how ridiculous would it be for you to take the trash out? No, it's not ridiculous. It's not ridiculous at all. Being able to get your counterpart to say no in order to get what you want. And I'm saying this all with a smile on my face because um, Ashley <laughs> definitely knows I use this to the extreme and it's just been fun to do. So instead of asking questions to get your client to say yes, flip it instead and say no. One that I like to use at the gym, if somebody has too much weight on the bar, something I like to do because I love asking questions, I say, hey, are you opposed to taking those 45s off? And you say, no, I'm not opposed to that. 
awesome, great win. <laughs> and it's kind of these subtle conversations you have with people and it's kind of a fun game that you can play. Uh, I highly encourage you guys to check out the interviews I did with, or we've done with Chris Voss and his son, Brandon Voss, if you're interested in more of the negotiation side of things. And obviously check out his book. It's one of the best books uh, that you can buy um, just in general. It's just such a great book for anybody that wants to get better at, at their negotiating. Next one, 90% of success, successful things in life don't cost money, just time and discipline. Andrew Huberman. Uh, I think about a lot of people think that you have to spend a lot of money to feel good, to become the best version of yourself, to look the best version of yourself, or uh, to be in the best shape of your life. That couldn't be more untrue. And that's a message I want to keep getting out to people. Things like sleep, nutrition, mindfulness, journaling, surrounding yourself with the right people, exercise, reading, getting daily sunlight, all of those things don't cost anything. So there should never be an excuse of, I don't have enough money to blank. Some of the most basic principles in life of uh, if you're trying to pursue becoming the best version of yourself, don't cost anything. And some might say, yeah, well, maybe a gym membership. A gym membership is not required for you to be the fittest, uh, to feel good and feel fit. Some people forget about just the power of walking, something I've been taking up this summer. I've walked every single day and it has not only helped just my fitness, but it's helped my mind, um, uh, my body, my mood. Don't forget that you can become a incredibly fit um, and, and uh, happy individual by not spending any money at all. 90% of the most successful things in life don't cost money, just time and discipline. Next one. Your intention, sorry, your attention without intention is wasted life. Your attention with intention is where your best life lives from Brian Kane. It's the power of intention. Something I love to talk about. Be intentional. Don't just hope things happen. Justin Sua says, live life on purpose with purpose. Another quote is, live your life by design, not default. Be in the driver's seat of your own life. Don't just hope things happen. I think one of the best ways to do it, I used to think it was funny and silly and something kind of goofy that nobody else did, was I created a to-do list. Every single day, I have a spelled out list of hour by hour what I'm doing for that day. I create intention about every single thing that I'm doing. Some people may think that's a little bit psychotic, but it works for me. I know where I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to be doing, and I'll even put silly things on there like empty the dishwasher or... Um, uh, take the trash down on Tuesday nights. Why? Because I, not one, I don't want to forget, but two, I'm creating intention about everything that I want to do. There's also a lot of power and science behind to-do lists and be able to cross things off. And when you cross things off, there's a little bit of a dopamine hit that gives you some more confidence and momentum. And if you can create that confidence and momentum, especially early in the morning, you can see it slowly spread out through the rest of your life and into the other tasks of your day. So one of the ways to be more intentional is to create a to-do list or a checklist of some sort. Create intention on every single thing that you do. And the quote is powerful because you can have, you know, if you just have attention and no intention, you're just kind of floating through life and whatever happens, happens. And, and um, you know, I'm just hoping that the best happens for me. I, I don't really have a process. That's wasted life. But if you have attention and intention, that's where your best life can be. So you're paying attention. You're doing things on purpose with purpose. Live your life by design, 
not by default. Next one. Next one is Ben Bergeron's mindset hierarchy. Recently had a guy, Ben, who I look up to so much on the podcast. It was one of those moments where you know I have a couple people that are stashed away um, on a list that I just are kind of my all-time favorite people that I want to have on the show. And Ben was one of them. And we have just so much in common when it comes to talking about mindset. And recently, he crafted a framework around mindset and mindset hierarchies. One of the pitfalls i think about mindset is there isn't a lot of there's a lot of books and textbooks but there really isn't ways to kind of measure it or talk about it and uh, yeah there's a lot of ways to talk about it not a lot of ways to measure it and ben has done something that i think needs to be talked about more and he talks about the my mindset hierarchy and let me explain the bottom of the hierarchy is the victim mindset and the victim says things like why is this happening to me why me? Excuse me. They think everything happens to you. You have no control and can't change the situation. You won't accept responsibility for your choices. The victim is the bottom of the barrel. You can't get any lower than the victim mindset. And I know just by describing that person, everybody that's listening can probably think of somebody in their life that's always the victim. The second level up is the pessimist. The pessimist's outlook is always dire. Everything sucks. I can't find the good in anything, even if it's staring me right in the face. Something like, this is terrible. Of course it's raining. That's level two. Level three is the optimist. The optimist lives on hope and belief, but doesn't have a plan other than that things will just work out. They're typically the glass half full type person and tends to think in life of more as opportunities. Level Four is the realist. The realist says bad things will happen. Good things will happen. Life can be random and unfair. How we react defines us. We're kind of getting closer and closer to the types, excuse me, the type of mindset that we want. But Ben challenges it one more time. Instead of being a realist, he wants to say, be a warrior. What is the warrior mindset? The warrior mindset is that at the top. The warrior mindset seeks out challenges so they can grow. They want to be pushed. They want to learn from mistakes. They see everything in life as a challenge. They don't compare themselves to others. And they often ask themselves the question, what is this teaching me? A lot of this comes from Stoic philosophy as well. There's a book called The Stoic Challenge. Um, I had William Irving. Yeah, William Irving wrote, uh, wrote the book. I had him on the show. And a lot of this aligns into the same idea. The warrior mindset is about seeing life as a challenge. So as I talked about earlier, nothing is either good nor bad, only thinking makes it so. So to put that in real life example, let's say your flight gets canceled or delayed. Instead of being a victim and saying, why is this happening to me? Why me? It's always happens to me. The warrior would say, hmm, this is a good challenge. This is a good challenge for me. Somebody's challenging me. Somebody's challenging me right now. And I want to be pushed. What can I learn from this? What is this teaching me? What can I do right now to take advantage of the time I have now that I have to wait for my flight? Big difference between warrior and victim mindset. That's the top and the bottom. And I think there's a lot of ways that we can take this into our daily life. Think about your life as a constant challenge. Anything that happens. And those of you that are competitive, especially the CrossFitters, I kind of smile when I say that, we like to be challenged. We want to have somebody doubt us a little bit. 
So when something happens that you might think is bad, although we never know what is good or bad in this world, you never know that flight getting delayed could be one that wasn't um, something wasn't uh, up to uh, uh, standard on the flight and could have made the flight go down. And who, who knows? It could have saved your life. But it's so instead of thinking everything as why is this happening to me or everything sucks, instead, try to think more as this is a challenge. Somebody's challenging me. How can I grow from this? What, what is this teaching me? And it's hard, right? Ben talks about it. It's hard to have the warrior mindset in all aspects of life. Probably no, nobody's there. Nobody's perfect. But in every situation, we have a chance to choose how we react. So are you going to react as the victim? Are you going to react as a pessimist? Are you going to react as an optimist, a realist, or a warrior? Next one. Never whine, never complain, never make excuses. I've had that quote on the front of my phone for as long as I've had a phone. Um, it's something that is very important to me. I also have a bracelet that says that. And a few years ago, I made t-shirts and sold them. And on the front said, never whine, never complain, never make excuses. Uh, this is coined or probably most common with Ben Bergeron. And I think it's just the idea of if you blame and complain, you remain the same. Whining doesn't ever make the situation better. It never does. It may make you feel good in the moment to complain or bitch about something, but rarely does it ever actually improve your situation. So why do it? Your complaining also has an instantaneous effect on the people around you. So you might think, yeah, I'm complaining, but it's fine. It's just the way I am, et cetera, et cetera. But you know what? Your excuses or complaining or outbursts are not just affecting you. They're affecting the people around you. So yeah, you might be a victim, but you might have 10 people around you that are striving to have that warrior mindset. And now you're ruining it for them because of your complaining. Complaining never changes the situation. Never. And also take some freaking ownership. You hear people say, gosh, it's so hot here. Then move. Oh, this workout. I can't do this workout so hard. Then stop. Um, oh God, the news is so annoying. All they do is talk about the stop watching the news. Take some ownership instead of complaining. Take some ownership in your life. Stop whining, stop complaining, and stop making excuses. Last one, have to versus get to. We talk a lot about mindset. We talk a lot about words and stories in your head. And I like to, I like to talk about the philosophy, but I also like to give people applicable ways to spell it out. I previously just talked about not whining, not complaining, not making excuses. Yeah, that's a big. That's a that's one way. I think another way is to uh, have the 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 framework in your head, the lens in your head of you get to do things. You don't have to do things. Change your mindset by changing the words that you speak. You don't have to pick up your kids from school. You get to. You don't have to work out today. You get to. You don't have to go to work today. You get to. Life is all about perspective. And my guess is there's probably millions of people who would do almost anything to switch places with you. If you want to become more positive, you want to grow your mindset, 
obviously it starts between the ears and the story you tell yourself as we alluded to earlier but it also has to do with the words that you're saying out loud which is what we talked about with complaining one of the ways that you can improve your mindset is to improve your perspective and also improve your gratitude there's a lot more gratitude when you say things like i get to do that and some of you may kind of scowl or laugh or say you know what oh it's such a formality like oh i get to but just try it try it for an extended period of time saying i get to do this you'll be surprised at how much the words you say affect the way you feel about things you'll be surprised about the words that you say how you say them actually affect your memory you could get out of a concert and say oh yeah it, it was awesome it was the best concert i've ever been to and because you said that out loud you might not even believe that but because you said that you could say that 15, 15 or 20 years later somebody could ask you about your concert experience and you could go back and say it was the best concert i've ever been to simply because you just put that out there and you remember yourself saying that over and over and over again have to versus get to you get to do these things there's so many people who would love to be able to do the things that you get to do on a daily basis change your perspective change your mindset and improve your quality of life stop whining stop complaining stop making excuses and start to think about the opportunities in your life as gifts and as things that you get to do that's all i got guys i hope you really enjoyed it um thanks for sticking with me i know that was a lot of information i plan on doing this again at some point uh those are kind of some of the big takeaways big lessons th things that i've had on my mind recently and as i start to grow from this podcast uh one of the projects i have is putting all this together putting into some sort of i don't know if it's a book if it's an ebook or if it's taking it on stage and and talking in front of an audience but this has helped me i hope that has helped you as well kind of uh put a summation on some of the big key items i've taken away from the podcast over the last four years and again as i said uh earlier looking ahead i'm looking at doing another show uh maybe like a five to ten uh, minute segment something like mindset mondays or weekly reminders if you want to hear more from me and get to know me a little bit more that's where you can so uh, stay tuned for that thank you guys for tuning in thank you for staying with me if you're still with me this far thus far and i look forward to connecting with you guys soon have a great week we'll see you again soon